Well, when I was 20 years old, I went for a job interview. Now, I'd been for other job interviews, but this was a particularly big job interview because it was my first job interview for church work. I I wanted to work for church. So they had an internship. It was kind of like our MA program, and you had to go through, uh, you know, an interview for it. Now, at our church that I was going to in America, they had this big, extensive discipleship year. And usually, everyone that had done that year went in and did this internship program. I had not done that discipleship program, so I felt like I had no chance at all of getting this this internship. So I went for the interview, I sat down, gave it my best, which was not very good, and I left feeling like I had absolutely messed it up. Has anyone here ever done an interview where you feel like you are just not your best? Yeah, it's almost like you feel like you're on a first date. You're like, why is this so uncomfortable? And that's how it felt. It was horrible. And I went home, and I had put all my eggs in this basket of being an intern, getting an opportunity to work with young people for the first time. I was 20 years old. I was ready to do it. So I stayed up praying and praying and praying. And my roommates all went to bed, and I just sat in a darkened room with one candle lit, praying, crying out to God. I was like, God, give me this job. I want this job so bad. I just thought if I prayed hard enough, God would definitely hear me. And I know many of you will not understand this because you're British and I'm American. And this is a very American thing that happened. I felt like I had all of these emotions inside of me and I just wanted them to come out. I just wanted them to come out so bad. And so I did the unthinkable. I started fake crying. I was alone and I just thought, I've got to like show God that I'm earnest. So I went, God, would you please just... <laughs> and I had this thought, God knows everything. He knows I'm fake crying. I know I'm fake crying. And we're the only two people in this room right now. So if you would have been a fly on the wall, you would have literally seen me do this. God, I just... And it was like, I just stopped. You know, and it was horrible. I just thought, well, that's probably not the way forward, fake crying. But what I did do is I kind of, in this wrestle started over a period of time that night, my prayers just began to change a little bit. And it started from, God, give me this job. I want this job. Please, will you tell me if I've got this job? And by the end of my prayer time, I was praying a different prayer. My prayer was, God, I trust you with this job. Have your way. Whatever happens, I want you to give me this job if it's right. If it's not, I trust you. And that was the process that I went through with this prayer. And it's a very different prayer. And for me at 20, that was hugely developmental for me to begin to begin to pray prayers that were about relying on God more than Him just fulfilling my needs. It's really developmental. And as we look at this chapter in Exodus, I think we can see some huge keys about relying on God. How important relying on God is. In fact, we're going to talk about three truths of relying on God. Now, there's more than three truths when it comes to relying on God. There's more than three important things when it comes to relying on God. But we're going to see three that were important for the Amalekites and Moses. And we're going to see uh, three and these three and how they apply to us. Okay? So we're going to look, first of all, at how we can rely on God in the ups and downs of life. Secondly, we're going to look at how we can rely on God in prayer. 
And thirdly, we're going to look at how we can rely on God in friendships. So let's look at the first one. How can we rely on God in the ups and downs of life? Well, if we catch up with the Israelites, we see them about to go to war with the Amalekites. We see men suiting up for war, strapping on swords, getting ready to go against the Amalekites. These are men who two months earlier were slaves in Egypt. These Israelites have no military training. The last couple of weeks, they have not been getting ready for war. In fact, they've been fleeing from their oppressors. We know they they fled from the Egyptians. They crossed the Red Sea. And they've been wandering around the desert for two months now. Out of food and out of water. So as they strap on those swords, I think they may have felt a little overwhelmed by the thought of going to war. But if they look back and they remember correctly what's happened, they've not just fled, they've not just been hungry and thirsty. Actually what they had, instead of fleeing from Egypt, is they had a deliverance from Egypt in a flurry of miracles from God. They weren't just hungry and thirsty in the desert, but they were also fed and watered by God's miraculous provision. As the army of the Amalekites amasses, they can look at Moses and hope again that the Lord will provide for them in ways beyond their own ability. What those Israelites need is another miracle. And this is at the time when we first see Joshua. He first comes on the scene here. And he's in charge of picking up, hand-picking men to go up against these Amalekites. In verse 9, we see such confidence in Moses. He says, Joshua, grab the men, go into the valley. I'm going up on that hilltop, staff in hand, my hands raised to God. I love it. The scripture in no place tells us how Joshua felt at that time. But I can imagine that he would have brought him so much confidence to look up in the war and see Moses on that hilltop, hands raised, staff of God in hand. This is the staff of God that was in Pharaoh's court and was thrown down and became a snake and picked back up and became a rod. This is the rod of God that hit the Red Sea and parted it and gave them freedom. This is the rod of God that hit the rock and water came out of it. This is staff of God represents God's power working on the behalf of the Israelites. And there it is on top of the mountain raised. So over and over again in the desert, we see God's power working on behalf of these Israelites. But they haven't had an easy time of it, have they? In fact, since leaving Egypt, they have had a rough road. It's been the opposite of easy. It's been difficult. And this might have come to, as a shock to some Israelites. I think they would have thought, slavery, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Egypt, not good. Full of hardships. But now we're God's chosen people. Now we've got God on our hand. Now we've been delivered. We're going to the promised land. Now it's much easier. Life will get better from here. I think that would have been a logical thinking. We crossed the Red Sea. No more Egyptians. Let's go. Party time. But this is not their reality at all. There is no evidence as we look at Exodus that following God will lead to a better and better life. Life with God does not get people out of the battles of life. Their life will always be filled with ups and downs. 
the years of plenty and the years of lean. But there is a promise for God's chosen people as they get ready to defend themselves against the Malachites. That he will be by their side, guiding them and directing them, helping them out through whatever comes their way. God's role is not to help people get out of the battle, but to help people get through it. And the Exodus story is really challenging for my life. When I was 17 years old, trust me, I would not have fit in with this youth group. I was a bit of a super Christian. Not in a super Christian like I was a really good Christian. I was a bit of a geeky Christian, like obsessed with Christianity a bit. I told my youth pastor, now it's a bit embarrassing that I'm even telling you this. I told my youth pastor at 17 that God had a big plan for my life. And that I was going to lead a small African nation to the Lord. And lead a revival in Israel. <laughs> That's embarrassing, isn't it? That I had even thought that. What pride. How, I don't know how my youth pastor didn't laugh in my face. But he was kind. He said things like, well, let's just pray about that, John. <laughs> Great youth pastor. I do that all the time now. Um, sorry, guys. You know my tricks now. Because my life in God has not been success to sex, success greater and greater. The fact is, it's been really normal. Full of ups and downs. I've heard to, I've had to learn that Christianity is not the golden ticket to a free ride through life, nor is it a calling to special spiritual success. Life in God is one of being formed and changed through the stuff of life. Sometimes we can feel that because things are difficult, we are out of God's will. That was not certainly not the case for the Israelites. They followed God and had difficulty and need. But they also had God consistently by their side and saw his hand at work. If life is difficult for you, it doesn't mean that you're out of the will of God. And it doesn't mean he's punishing you. I don't want to pretend that I know what you're going through or what's happening in your life. But I want you to hear me today. If life is hard, it does not mean that God is against you. That's not how it works. Sometimes life is just hard. But we know for sure that God is always with us, always beside us, always walking through it with us. And that is the first truth that we can really rely on. We can rely on God through the ups and downs. We can rely on God because He will never leave us. He is always for us. Whether you are an Israelite getting ready for battle or in a difficult season of life, God is always there to be relied upon. So that's the first truth. God is all you can rely on God the ups and downs of life. Let's look at the second truth. How to rely on God in prayer. So I really do have so much respect for Moses. Because over and over again he hears from the Lord and he just goes for it. I think if I put myself in Moses' shoes, there'd be a little bit more doubt, you know? Like, God, you want me to hold up my hands all day? Is that you or me? That's a bit weird, you know? That's how I would think about it. But Moses, he just goes for it. He's got guts. Because he is confident that he hears from the Lord. In every scripture that we see most up to date, where it's asked that he has to take a risk and he has to trust God, there's always a variation in the phrase, 
the Lord said to Moses. In every single situation. The burning bush, it's God talking. When he says to go to Pharaoh, he says very clearly, go, I am sent you. When he institutes the Passover, it's instructions from God. When he goes to the Red Sea, the Lord says, do this. In the desert, with manna, when they need water, it constantly says, and the Lord said, do this. And Moses does it, and God backs it up. But in this scripture, there is no, there's nothing. We don't hear from God at all until after the miracle has already happened. There is no verse that says, the Lord says to Moses, go up on top of that hill and hold up your hands. It doesn't happen. It doesn't appear. It's the first time that we don't see it. But what we see is Moses just doing it naturally. Because he's following God. Because he has learned through obedience what to do. He knows that when there is a need or conflict, the first thing to do is put God right at the center for a solution. And that's what he does. As Joshua goes into that valley to fight, Moses takes Aaron and her up on the mountain to raise his hands in prayer for God's victory. Notice I said God's victory. It's not Joshua's victory, nor is it Moses' victory, and it's not the Israelites' victory. By lifting his hands in prayer, he is putting God at the center and relies on him for the victory. It all comes from God. Moses with his hands raised and that staff in hand, it's a beautiful picture of what prayer really is. Prayer is putting God at the center. When his hands are raised in prayer, there is victory. When they come down, defeat. Victory in this battle is entirely in the hands of the Lord. This reliance on God is a crucial lesson for the Israelites. It's really important. Whether it be freedom or food or victory, it's all based around God and relying on God. And this is the epic journey of God's people. Over and over again. Every time he is at the center, things go well. Every time God is taken out, things go pear-shaped. So I want to apply this to us now. As we think about God and we think about prayer as God at the center, I want us to think about two different pictures. The first is the juggler. And what that is is someone who holds all of life. And each part of life that's important is a ball. There's one that says, work on it. You throw it in the air. There's one that says, um, family on it, you throw it in there. There's finances, and there's food, and there's cleaning, and doing the yard, and kids, and uh, your future, and church. And they're all balls that we throw in the air, and we have to keep every ball in the air. We have to keep all of our homework happening. We have to keep every report coming in, and we have to keep God satisfied by obeying Him and showing up to church. And we're juggling all of these balls of life. And sometimes these balls grow, and you've got work that's so heavy, it's like a bowling ball. How do I keep this up? We have to drop some balls, because we can't keep up the heavy burdens. And that's what we do. That's the juggler. And some of us have gotten really good at juggling, keeping everything up in the air, but it's based on us. How do we keep everything up? But there's a second picture. It's one that's the solar system. And this is God at the center. Imagine Jesus as the sun. And all of those things that are important to you, family and work, relationships and finances, it's not about you keeping them up, but it's about them revolving around God. And He keeps them in check. And He helps you. 
And it is all revolving. These planets are not balls that you have to keep up, but they are things that you can give to God. He is at the center. It's a mind shift, this is. This goes back to, if you can imagine that prayer that I did, at the very that very first story, where I started at saying, God, can you give me this job? It's important to me. I have to have this so I can get where I want to go. You see, that's the juggling prayer. That's It's just one more thing that I've got to keep going so I can do what I want to do, so I can be who I want to be, and I'm just going to juggle this life through, and God, you can just play your part in this thing. But there's a very different thing when you begin to shift and begin to say, God, it is not so much about me being in charge and getting where I want to go, but you are in charge. I submit it to you. I give it to you. Take it. I follow you. You are the center. Let your name be glorified. God, I know I'm busy at work. I ask that you'd help me. I ask that this work would be for you. Show me how you want me to do work. Do you see the difference? It's God at the center. And when this happens, when we put God at the center, and it's just not another thing that we do, our lives are transformed. Our lives become prayer. We don't just pray. Our lives become prayer. Because everything we do is for the glory of God. This is the journey of the Christian. To make God at the center. So the second truth is this. If we make real prayer, is about putting God at the center. So we looked at two truths now. The first is that we can rely on God because He is with us in the ups and downs of life. And the second is that when we can really rely on God, when He's at the center of our lives, then we see how powerful God really is in our lives. Let's look at the third truth. It is God within friendship, within community. So if we go back up to this mountain... Thanks, Toby, for that picture. Um, when we go back up to that mountain, um, we have Moses lifting up his hands. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't really even keep my hands up through an entire Be Thou My Vision. I tend to sing Be Thou My Vision through the good parts, and then my hand goes down to my heart for the parts that I don't know the words to. It's like, you know, Be Thou My Vision. Be Thou My... I can't do it through the whole song, okay? So I can only imagine... That Moses, it doesn't take long for his arms to be aching. It doesn't take long for his arms to fall down. And it would have been really easy for the writer of Exodus to leave this part out. It would have been easy for him to say that Moses is just a world-class leader who could accomplish any feat by his sheer willpower. But they don't. They show Moses for who he really is, a righteous man of God who is very much human. When he went up on that mountain with his friends, from the beginning of the journey, he knew that he would need help. It would be no good for him to be up there and play the hero and then have his arms go down and cry for help because no one was around. So look at verse 12. When his feet grow tired, Aaron and her provide him a seat. His arms grow weak, so they support him. Such practical service, yet such a small thing like holding up Moses' hands and that lives were being saved in the battle below. Moses had to rely on God. Moses had to rely on Joshua. He had to rely on Aaron and Hur. But this does not diminish what Moses achieved. Rather, it shows the power of his leadership to allow others to come around him and support him. The victory belonged to the Lord that day. 
But he loves using humans who work together for him. And as we've looked on relying on God through the ups and downs and relying on God through prayer, both of these need this third element of relying on friendship. We need people to walk beside us through life's up and down, ups and downs. We need people to journey with us to pray and encourage each other to put Jesus at the center of everything. Moses gives us a good model of living. He listens to God. He takes a risk by acting on what God has said. But he's always supported by friends. He's always supported by people and everything he does. If we are to rely on God, then we will be challenged to step out of our comfort zones and trust God. This requires friends to encourage us and challenge us, help us and celebrate with us. I think this sounds like a pretty good definition of a church. So the last truth is relying on God is that we cannot rely on God by ourselves. We have to have people around us. So we looked at three truths of how we can rely on God. We looked at the first one is we can rely on God because he is with us in the ups and downs of life. The second is that we can rely on God by putting prayer in the center of our lives. And lastly, we can rely on God by ourselves. We cannot rely on God by ourselves. We need friends around us. These are the truths that Moses used to defeat the Amalekites. He had to have each one of these. And the end when the battle is over in verse 15 and 16, we see Moses building an altar. An altar that remembers how God provided a victory where there was no chance. An altar to the Lord who was with him through the battle. He was at the center of the battle and with him on the mountaintop with his friends. Moses relied on the Lord and the Lord is with him. I want to see us build some altars around HTC. I want to see us remember what God's done because we've relied on God. Because we've tested him. We've given it a go. I want to see us rely on God through all the ups and downs. When life is good, when life is tough. I want to see us give, us a go, give it a go and say, God, we trust you. I want us to see us to put God at the center of our lives in prayer. And see what that does. How that transforms our life, lives. How that changes our worldview. I want to see us supporting and caring one another. Looking for other people in church. Not just thinking what I need. But thinking how we can care for others. And when you come to church needy, that someone would ask you what they can do for you. Let's rely on God and watch Him do beyond what we could do. Let's see if God, when we rely on Him, how He can come through in the clutch. When we really need Him, like Moses did in that battle.